Hey team, welcome back and welcome to part two in our special series on corporate transitions. In this space, we talk about dental transitions and how to navigate the sometimes messy path of practice ownership. And as we've discussed, sometimes ownership leads to a transition that isn't to a private buyer. How do these work? Why would I? Why wouldn't I? In this special four-part series, we'll tackle the corporate sale and all the things you need to know to approach those educated and armed with the facts. So welcome to part two of our four-part series. On part one, we covered your big, big questions, the why and the are you ready? These are critical, important questions that you have to consider to ensure you're prepared for this process. And we're going to dive into that today. If you missed that one, push pause, go back, listen to part one. Critical that you start there. But if you're all caught up, it's the foundation of the house and hopefully you have a little bit more clarity on what that looks like. Today, we're going to move on. We're going to discuss the deal. Basically, who are the key players? What are the logistics? What's the structure? Who am I actually working with? We're going to figure out the how and the why. This is so, so important in planning for or interpreting an existing offer. Every deal can look different. And again, all the various levers and buttons that can be pushed and pulled here are really what can have an impact on your financial and personal impact post-sale, which we talked about so much in part one. But before we dive in, want to say hello to my lovely, handsome co-host in this series, Brett and Charles. How are you both today? I've been called lovely in years. Thank you, Christine. <laughs> you are so welcome. Hello, Brett. What about you, Mr. Loretto? All good. Wonderful day and 70-something degrees in Dallas, Texas. No more uh, ice, sleet, and snow, and no uh, pipes are bursting, and people are outside walking around, not sliding around. So uh, good time to be in Dallas. <laughs> Back to good old normal Texas. Well, I love it. Now, Brett, this is clearly something that is, we're going to tackle it and we could talk for hours about this topic and the various pieces of it, but we're not, so don't panic. But it's clearly something that can be different for every buyer. And I think all of our opinions can be one of the least understood aspects of a transition. Some see EBITDA, I think actually most see EBITDA as that you know, kind of the gold piece that we've got to figure out and talk about when we talk about corporate sales, but this can really make a bigger impact, right? Yeah, the EBITDA definitely matters. EBITDA matters, um, It's but it's far from the only thing that matters. So you pay attention to it. You certainly pay attention to it, but don't forget about everything else, which is very important. The, the, deal, the deal terms matter. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. So don't just get lost in EBITDA because there's a million ways we can manipulate that. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So let's take a step back. Okay. So I'm going to start like super elementary. So if you're listening and you've listened to others and you've been on a million webinars, just hang with us for a few minutes because I know there are many listeners who have not. And this is kind of part of what we want to do, which is educate you on all these different terms. So let's start first with brokers versus the buyer's versus figuring it out on your own, right? Kind of let's talk about those kind of key players. Brett, I'm going to throw this to you since this is kind of your world. Yeah. So there's a really big difference between brokers and buyers, and it's not always easy to understand who is who in these conversations. Similar to real estate, the practice brokers control the message in the market. So the letters that you're getting, the calls that you're getting, the podcasts that are being hosted, the webinars that that you're seeing, The majority of these are hosted by the practice brokers, the agents and the representation that helps you transition your practice, sell your practice or whatever your entity is. And so when you're having conversations with people that are bringing ideas to you or bringing values to you or writing you letters and saying, 
I don't really know who you are, but I can get you $7 million for your practice. I promise you that as a broker and that broker wants you to call him because he or she wants to help you sell your practice and then they get a commission off of that. So it's basically follow the money. How are people getting compensated in terms of how they're dealing with your deal? And then truly, truly understand, is it representation that you're talking to or is it the actual buyer you're talking to? Most of the conversations that I have, the doctors think the broker is the buyer. And while the broker has, in most cases, everybody's best interest at heart, there is a difference in that between a broker and a buyer. We kind of jokingly say, if the company name is an aggressive animal, if the name of it is an aggressive animal like shark or viper or snake or tiger, it's probably a broker. Most of the buyers and the private equity firms don't go that aggressive with their branding. A little more straight-laced from their names. Yeah, that, that's right. So while you... It gets me every time, right? Every time you tell that, I, I know it's coming. I've heard this joke of yours like 42 times, but just to see you get all excited about your little vipers and snakes. But it's so true. You're, you're exactly right. All these uh, brokers out there for some reason, I think we need a, a stronger national or placements or something. Yeah, in we need to be like gnarly, dangerous python or something ridiculous. Gnarly is okay. I don't think that works. <laughs> national dinosaur. No, no. Keep going, Brad. Keep going. Sorry I distracted. Keep going. Full disclosure, NDP broker, right? We are a broker. We... We provide representation. We help you get the ma- the most out of your practice. We help you maximize the value. We help you understand all of the things that are involved in the deal. That's exactly what we're doing now. And hopefully you get educated from this. And so while you're reading, listening, or however you consume content, always consider the source. Always consider the source of where you're getting this information. Is it your friend who may or may not know anything? Is it a broker who's clearly incentivized to convince you that you need to move to a transaction? Is it the buyer? Is it some other kind of news source? Just always consider the source and understand how everybody's incentivized to kind of create these transactions. So following the money and understanding who stands to gain by you doing that. So brokers versus buyers versus doing it yourself. It's a very similar concept to like how you would buy or sell your home. Some people do for sale by owner. Some people don't. Some brokers add a lot of value. Some real estate brokers add a significant amount of value. And a lot of real estate agents and brokers do not. And so understanding who you're working with there and not all brokers are created equal, just like not all buyers and not all deals are created equal. Absolutely. That's fantastic. So now if we take kind of that buyer group, right, understanding that the buyer is kind of where that money comes from, let's talk about the differences in types of buyer. I think in general, when we kind of listen to webinars or read things, we see kind of the terms of private equity, DSO, corporate, like kind of those kind of merge. We will use them interchangeably ourselves, right? But there is a distinction between those groups, right? So what is a DSO versus PE, give me kind of high level what that is. So I'm gonna talk about this in terms of like the operational entity. So there's private equity and there's the DSO, which in some circles is called a strategic. So we'll start with the DSO. The DSO is the operational entity that has, most of these guys that you're seeing, like the Heartlands, the Dental Care Alliances, these are traditional DSOs, which means they have this massive corporate infrastructure. They have many locations across the country and they're clearly already operating in the dental space. So it's a DSO. There's no real definition of what a DSO actually is because they all can take all these different shapes and sizes. But at the end of the day, like they are already operating in the dental space. They have an aggregation of practices, an aggregation of EBITDA. They have some level of corporate oversight and corporate infrastructure, and they are adding on practices to their existing group of practices geographically focused most of the time. So that's kind of what a DSO is. A private equity group 
which sometimes we consider like an emerging group in this instance is possibly somebody who's looking to get into the dental space. They don't, maybe they, maybe they don't have much infrastructure now, but they're looking for a platform practice or a variety of practices to start as basically the nucleus of the DSO that they're kind of starting. So the private equity group in this instance, in most cases, they have healthcare experience, they have healthcare investing experience, and they may be coming in new to the market. They're the source of the money and the funding to buy the practices. And as they get that funding and they start buying practices, they will be creating a DSO. So there are just there are different nuances there. The established DSOs are going to have a lot more infrastructure, a lot more corporate oversight. Any stock position that you hold in them is going to be a pretty regular and consistent return. And with the emerging groups, there's a lot of chatter with emerging groups. There's a lot of money coming into dental because of the returns that some of these groups are seeing. You're going to see more and more of these as we move forward, as the stock market continues to be more and more volatile and, and a variety of other investment vehicles become less appetizing. People are seeing that dental is a great way Way to make money and a great way to get returns. So these emerging groups of people who may or may not know what they're doing are coming into dental and saying, we just need to buy some practices. We're seeing how much these guys net. We're seeing how much these things can turn over. And then we're going to try to sell it to somebody else. So there's a big difference there. There's a difference in the deal terms. There's going to be a difference in you know what your stock position in these groups looks like. We'll help you navigate that. You don't need to know all that on the front side. But as we get into the conversation, the DSOs are different than the private equity groups that are kind of that don't necessarily have a lot of infrastructure on the front side. And that kind of ties back a little bit to what we talked about in part one, which is understanding your why and kind of what you're looking for in this type of sale. And that helps Brett and myself and Charles as we look and understand what type of buyer you might want or need based on kind of what you're wanting, right? Correct me if I'm wrong, Brett, but those emerging groups are going to probably have less of a structure. They're going to need more involvement from the practices that they take over because they're going to need that support, right? So if you're a bigger practice that have a lot of really good processes in place, you might be more attractive to maybe an emerging because they need kind of that infrastructure or people or process because they may not have as much experience in dental. Right or wrong? That's a great point because you need to understand, referencing episode one, you need to understand what you're looking for and what you're looking for help on. Because as you said, not all these groups have the same amount of infrastructure. Not all of these groups have the same equity return history. Not all of these groups operate the same way. And not all these groups have a similar source of money. The, the source of the money is what really matters here. It's like, how aggressive are they going to be? How much, you know, you're basically betting on the person who buys you to help grow kind of the mothership there a little bit. So yeah, like these groups all, all matter. It matters. All these different things matter. You don't necessarily have to understand them all, but you certainly need somebody to help you understand them. I was going to say too, just like when you look at those two from a DSO and a private equity, think about the on a, a P side. So it's like an emerging stock. So anytime you think of emerging, you're going to essentially have a little bit higher risk, higher rate of return if it hits. But the, the consistency with partnering with the DSO, at least you have history of maybe hundreds of transactions, hundreds of practices with the support in place. So it's important to look at this kind of globally and to figure out, okay, this one, you might get a little bit more money out of it, but maybe you're the security of that, maybe the second sale may not be there. Maybe the security of the support that you were really looking for. And that was part of the number one thing that we interviewed, you know, you and basically saying, this is what I want. You may not get that. So it's essentially trying to balance that out and play the game of the money. Like you said, it, you said it earlier, it could be literally hundreds, thousands of dollars of difference, depending on the size of these transactions. 
but you've got to weigh all that out. Yep. And so I want to touch on one thing because I want to get to structure, right? We could get super complicated if we talk about structure. We might even have a special episode where we can kind of dive into the weeds and let Brett kind of give us all of the facts. But I think first and foremost, the first is your valuation of your business, right? And then the structure tells us how we split that value apart and how you get that value, right? So from a valuation standpoint, again, super high level primary understanding of what valuation is. No different than any other type of valuation and any other type of transition, how banks look at practices, et cetera. It's just what are they willing to pay for that? And what are those buyers willing to pay? So EBITDA, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization, Okay. It's an old accounting word that was super boring, and now it's got all the hype, and it is the most exciting word ever. It is basically the profitability of your business, right? If I take your profit of your business and I add back all the stuff you've been running through the business or all the owner compensation you've been paid, what do I get as the true profitability of your business? Okay. You have a good financial planner. If you have a good team, you already know that number. You kind of, or you have at least a rough idea of that number. You know your real overhead. And that is what we're trying to do. That's what my team does when we first, if we can get past the first call, we'll talk about the process a little bit later. If we can get past the first call and get engaged, That is what we will do first because that is the foundation and basis of understanding what your deal might look like because we have to understand your profitability, right? So we clean up all your financials to know what that number is. Then they take that profitability, right? And then we say, okay, well, we have to know what we're going to pay you as an owner to work back. So they'll calculate that number, right? If I'm an ortho, maybe it's a per diem. If I'm a other specialty, it's a percentage. Maybe it's a flat salary, right? We put that's part of understanding the deal. We will then remove that from your EBITDA to get to your after doctor comp EBITDA, okay? And that is what most of these buyers, not most, all of those buyers are going to use as the foundational EBITDA. What am I going to make after I pay you or a doctor to do the work, right? That's what's left over for that DSO or that private equity group or that buyer to profit from, right? And so they're willing to pay you a multiple of that number. A multiple just means, example, four times, five times, six times, 15 times if you're listening to the rumor mill, right? That's what we're going to get to, okay? And that's what the valuation of your business is. But let's say you have a million dollar EBITDA four times. Total valuation, $4 million. You don't get all of that up front. A little bit of a disclaimer, right? You're going to get that in pieces, right? And so that's how the structure then comes into play. And that's why we say this is really important and critical in understanding the deal is understanding how are we going to get that $4 million because you're not getting 100%. So with that caveat, Brett, what are some structures, right? In that example, it's a $4 million. It's a million dollar after doctor comp EBITDA with a $4 million valuation. What are some of the types of structures and how I get that kind of total value? Yeah, it's that's a good question. Because my brain's smaller than yours, I'm going to use a $10 million valuation, a $10 million total valuation on a practice. You know, every one of these deals breaks into three things. And if you think in your mind in terms of like a pie chart, but if you get a total practice value of $10 million, that $10 million is going to be broken down into three pieces. It's going to be one, cash at close. It's going to be two, kind of stock or an equity position in the buyer's kind of overall corporate mothership. And in some cases, it's also the third piece is practice level equity, which is basically you still owning a percentage of the profits of the practice based on your practice level equity. So let's use this $10 million example. A common example in this scenario would be a 70-20-10 deal. Okay. So that means in this pie chart, 70% of that pie chart is cash at close. 
So in this $10 million example, you'd be getting $7 million of cash at close. Congratulations. You could buy me a beer, whatever. The 20% will be in stock in the company. And that is basically you investing that 20% back into the company that you've partnered with and you grow when they grow. If that stock position grows and increases in value, your stock position grows and increases in value. Not too dissimilar than investing in a traditional stock or an equity position in a traditional company now. The remaining, so what, 70%, $7 million of cash up front, 20% is in equity. Okay, so $2 million is in an equity position in the host company. And when that host company grows and grows in value, your equity grows in value too. And then the 10% is at the practice level. So it's practice level equity. So you still own 10% of the profit of that practice. So if that practice in this instance, that practice probably has a $2 million EBITDA or something, you know, a $2 million EBITDA practice, you still are going to receive 10% of the practice profit proceeds. So let's just say you'll earn another $200,000 each year that that happens. So you're tied into the overall success of the practice. The practice grows and the practice becomes more profitable. That 10% is just worth more. So all of these transactions fall into these three buckets. Practice level equity isn't in every deal. But I promise you that stock and traditional equity is in every single deal and cash at close is in every single deal. If you're, if you're getting offered a deal with no cash at close, you're not even being offered a deal. So cash at close, a stock or an equity position, and then practice level equity. Those are the three drivers of all of these transactions. Yep. And I would assume, I think I know the answer to this question, but I would assume that what that ratio is, right? And if that practice level equity exists is dependent on the buyer, and probably also then sometimes dependent on the practice and the opportunity and the specifics regarding kind of that unique transition. True, false? Yeah, there's, there's a lot in there de- determining what those ratios are. I mean, I would say over half of the deals don't even involve an amount of practice level equity. But all of this, all these percentages are negotiated by us and by the buyer based on what we've discovered in our discovery calls and our relationship with you is that this is what matters to me. This is, I want to take chips off the table now. So I want as much cash up front as possible, or I have plenty of cash. I don't need a bunch of cash up front. I'd like to invest it in a company that I trust and I want to be incentivized to work forward more. All of these things change. We could do a 60, 40 deal. We could do a 50, 30, 20 deal. There's a variety of different levers that we can pull here to get that deal structure the way that you want it to be. But in general, it's it's a variety of, of these three elements. Okay, awesome. So let's talk about the levers, right? We've talked a couple of times about buttons we're pushing and levers we're pulling as part of these deals. What else matters in the deals that we're talking about, right? Clearly structure, what my total EBITDA calc is. Charles, what are some other things that matter when we're talking about a deal and and what are some of those levers that we can pull or need to consider? Yeah. So Brett, on what you just said, if you get 70% of the money up front, we tax affect it. We'll talk taxes in a little bit, but we tax affect that time value money. I get to take that money. I get to invest it. And then that deal, when, when I am receiving some type of additional equity, so now I get paid on my doctor as well as this equity. So I need to see that earning stream I'm going to have over this next to five years versus this other deal that I don't get the equity part of it and that profit. And so those are two completely separate transactions that we need to measure. You might get separate EBITDA calculations on those events as well. So again, kind of goes back to that, which one makes the most financial sense, not the money upfront and not the EBITDA six or seven or whatever, but which one impacts my financial plan better. So if we can take kind of a, just a step back for a second and just remind the listener, we have a million dollar practice. 
We have a 50% overhead after we look and add it back our interest and depreciation and all the discretionary, your Costco and your cars and your kids that have never put one foot in your practice. The thing makes $500,000. So it's a general practice in this example. So you're going to get paid on the doctor. Okay. 70% of the, the practice is doctor. So 700 times approximately 30, you're going to get a compensation package of work back of 210000 So now your EBITDA calculation in your simple mind and my simple mind is $290,000. So if we took a two ninety and just round up to 300000 for simple math, and you're getting a six EBITDA, so essentially your million-dollar practice is valued at 1.8. High level, that really makes a lot of sense because the open market, we may only get to value that business for eight hundred. So obviously there's there's more to this process than just I get six times 300. What you also have to understand is how that these DSOs, private equities, and primarily it's DSOs, charge you a management fee to do all of those things that you didn't want to do in one. So remember, I want to sell because I don't want to do all this stuff. Well, guess what? They're going to charge you to do that stuff to manage the thing that quote unquote HR and the legal. So now all of a sudden, if you can think about I've got a 300,000 EBITDA, they're going to charge in this example anywhere between 5, 7, and 10% of revenue. So inside this calculation that they're doing now, in the example of the million dollar practice, they're charging you $100,000. So now all of a sudden your EBITDA is not 290 or 300. Now it goes down to 200, okay? All of a sudden, that, that's impacting. Maybe it's 220, 230. Now take that number times six, and now all of a sudden, it's like, well, it's like 1.4, and then maybe I get 70, 80%. So again, it's just really understanding how this process works and does this make sense. And what you'll figure out is obviously the larger the practices are and the more efficient these practices are, that all of a sudden, that valuation, that EBITDA calculation for you starts to really make a significant difference. I've always said, bigger the practice, higher the cash flow, more likelihood that this type of transaction is going to to make sense. So just know that there's a lot of different ways that that investor, the buyer, is going to come up with this calculation. And the great thing I love about Brett and his team is just the ability to negotiate all those different levers to make the impact as great as possible on the client that is, in this case, selling to get their greatest return. So a lot of cool like dynamics here. It's not just some like in a dental practice, hey, practices in Minnesota sell for about 80% of collections. It just there's nothing to it, right? This is your life's work and a big giant bank or institutions buying this. And we're talking millions of dollars of potential transaction here. We definitely want to see all these pieces and educate you and negotiate on your behalf. So clearly understand that how much you're paid impacts EBITDA, right? So that's a big piece. We oftentimes also get the question of how long am I going to have to hang around? So Brett, what has been your experience with that answer and kind of what you're seeing from buyers and deals? Yeah, all of these things affect your total practice value because they're all pieces of risk. And so like the more levels of risk that you can reduce to the buyer, the more the buyer is going to be willing to pay. Just like if you were buying anything, if you were buying a car, if you were buying someone 
else's practice. And so, you know, your compensation affects your EBITDA. The more that you get paid after transaction, the lower your EBITDA is going to be. Obviously, like paying you 15 bucks an hour after transaction is going to add a lot of risk to the buyer because you're not going to be too fired up about working. So we could fall in love with EBITDA multiples. We could fall in love with compensation, whatever we want to fall in love with here, all these things matter. So don't just like say, Hey, I talked to this guy and he was, I had a 5X deal on the table and now I have a 6X deal on the table. Well, in some cases, all he did was lower your EBITDA by upping your compensation. And now you're basically getting the same deal, but he's telling you that he raised it to a six times multiple. That's a little involved, but basically these levers affect each other. And so in terms of the typical time requirements, this is another risk factor. How much of the buyer's risk can I reduce? So the longer that you're willing to work for them, the more risk that you have reduced for them. So, But typically it's a three to five year commitment. Most of these guys are going to want you to be to stick around and be a part of the practice and give them an opportunity to assimilate the practice to a possible associate or, or something else. And so knowing that's true, if you're saying to yourself, boy, I really only have four years left that I want to be a dentist, understanding that your work back time is going to directly affect the value of that practice, it's probably time to start thinking about that so we don't get ourselves between a rock and a hard place here. Because if you're saying, I want to sell my practice and walk away tomorrow, there's a thing in this industry called key man risk, which basically means are you the entire business? And if you're the entire business, then I have a lot of key man risk attached to you. And so if I buy your practice and you leave tomorrow, what did exactly did I just buy? So we need to understand that if I'm looking to maximize the value of this, and if you're asking me to go to, we're going to go to the table together, we're going to go to war together on this thing. I need to have as much ammunition as I possibly can to convince the buyer that we're de-risking the situation them to raise the value for us. It's a pretty typical concept in these things. So three to five years is kind of a standard relationship. We can get down to two, we can get down to one if, if it calls for it, but the more leverage that we have on that side, the more years you have on that side, the, the better off we're going to be. Charles? Yeah, so I got a question for you. So what are some examples that you've seen where the buyer, the investor is okay with a one year or two year? Give me an example of a story or a client that they got great EBITDA, great calculation, and they only required senior doctor to work back for, let's say, a year, 18 months. Yeah, so it's actually happened a couple of times and there's always a story behind it because on the onset, if you go to a bunch of buyers and say, this guy wants to leave in a year, there are typically some questions. And so if you're getting ready to leave in a year, the deals that have worked so far are the ones where there has been replacement doctors kind of waiting. You know, you either have two good associates that are doing a lot of the work already for you, or you're in a particularly hot area where these DSOs call these practices kind of tuck-ins, which means they already have 10 practices in the area and they have a, a team of doctors that are able to kind of take over that work and it's not going to be an issue. So geography of the buyer matters. If they have nobody in the area and you have no plan for associateship and you have no prospects, that year term is going to be extremely risky for a buyer. And so it's basically like, just like any other business, if I'm buying your business and you're doing the work, I need to know that that work can still get done after you leave. And if you're not really doing anything anyway on the production side, which in one of these cases, that's what it was. He wasn't really producing that much anyway. It wasn't really that big of an issue. But a lot of our practices just don't fall into that category. You know, a lot of our smaller practices, they just don't have associates lined up at the door that can do all the work. And if you're in a rural area, it makes it even more difficult. But it is possible. And walkaway sales are also possible. But the situation has to be it. Yeah. In times I've seen it where it's like it's already running. So you have like this senior doctor. Yeah. They've got three associates already. It's a four or five million dollar practice. He or she's just barely involved. They get an excellent management team already. And so during the due diligence phase, 
they're walking in and they can just see this thing on autopilot. And it's just so well ran that now all of a sudden the key man, it's already kind of in transition to the brand and to the patients and to the associates. And I agree, it's in these great markets that can replace and, and find people. And it's in these markets where these people either A, want to be or B, they already have that position. So again, knowing your partner is kind of what they're looking for. And that can actually work out really well for some of the sellers if they kind of fall into that category. It's kind of weird. It's like the less valuable you are to the practice, the more valuable the practice is. Yes. <laughs> It's so, it's so sad because, you know, everybody is an owner. You want to be about me, 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 me. But you're right. Really, the value is when you step away. I mean, it's look, look how valuable NDP is now that I stepped away. You know, you bring Chrissy in. Look what happens. It just blows <laughs> up on you. Funny, but true because it's risk mitigation, right? It is, it's basically you've created a thing which should be, again, a lot of times in life, the goal is to create a thing that can survive without you, right? That's what's valuable. This brings up a question that I've received a few times and it'd be interesting on your take, Brett, about this. If you are the practice that has associates in there, right? Oftentimes, this kind of goes into our next point, but I want to talk about the associates first. So I have associates in the practice and I'm thinking about selling to private equity or corporate transition. How do I need to talk to my associates about that? Are they going to be required to stay around? Kind of what does that look like if I'm not, you know, like we just said, if I'm not that primary producer, what are your thoughts there? What's your experience there? And kind of what does that look like? Yeah, the typical thought process of most of these buyers is to keep everything the same way that it was before they bought the practice. So the compensation typically stays the same. The compensation arrangements stay the same. You'll probably want to sign at least a one or two year employment contract with the associates. And, you know, come all about these like little mental exercises. If you just think of it in terms of the buyer, if you put yourself in the buyer's shoes and you were buying your practice or you're buying a practice just like yours across the street, what are the things that you would be worried about? Okay, well, first and foremost, if you're one of those doctors that's heavily relying on associates, how am I going to keep these guys around? Because if they leave and you're not producing, again, what did I just buy? And so they want to go in there, and this is inclusive of all the staff. In most cases, if the staff is good, they want to keep all of them. They're not just coming in and washing everybody out and bringing in a bunch of robots that are wearing funny hats and red shirts. That's not how it works. So on the associate side, they're going to keep, in almost every case, they're going to keep the associate compensation the same. The last thing they want to do is build some sort of bad rapport or bad blood between a major producer in the practice. And in many cases, they will be incentivized to give the associates a path to ownership in terms of at the practice level or in terms of stock in the larger company. So that's an important piece to understand. You know, as you sell your practice, you still own a percentage of the equity in the practice. There will be ways for you to sell some of that equity to your associates or for your associates to earn additional points of equity. So if they're an ownership-driven associate, and if that's what gets them up in the morning is the idea of owning their own practice, this isn't just an eliminated option. They still have an opportunity to do that even when you partner with a corporate player like that. Yeah. So what I'm hearing here is it's kind of all leading back to making sure you pick the right partner depending on what type of practice you have and what your specific criteria and staff look like, right? If you have that situation where you have a lot of associates, making sure you understand what that life after sale is going to look like, not only for you, but for those associates and your staff, which leads me to the question that we also get, which is what's going to happen to my staff and non-doctor staff, right? What's going to happen to them after I sell? Are they going to fire them all? Are they going to give them the same benefits? Uh, What is going to happen to them? I mean, I think you kind of touched on this a bit, which is 
a good partner is going to want to keep what they just bought doing what it's doing, right? So they're going to want to keep things going as they are. We've actually seen a few instances where staff get additional benefits they didn't get with you as the owner, right, Brett? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So they're going to go in there and, you know, the day that they have the announcement or the day that you have the announcement to the staff that you're making a transition, you can talk about all the warm and fuzzy things that you want to, but nobody's listening to you until you tell them that they're not getting a pay cut, right? So almost never do these guys give, come in and just say, you know, Susie's making 20 bucks an hour. We're going to put her at 18 because you know what? That is right off the bat, a bad way to start. And so typically in these situations, the staff compensation package remains nearly identical to what they had before. If you have some sort of like elaborate bonus structure or bonus scheme, that might be kind of try to grandfather it into what the DSO, what the corporate buyer already has set up. And in terms of benefits, to your point, Christy, most of these are relatively large companies with pretty sophisticated benefit packages. And in many cases, the benefits received by the staff are better than the benefits that were originally given by the private owner. And in many of those cases, the cost of that coverage isn't any higher than it was before, even with better coverage, just because of the scale that they bring to it. So in terms of compensation and in terms of benefits, it's usually a net positive for any and all staff members in this situation. If you have a couple particularly bad employees and they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing and or they're, you've been wanting to get rid of them for years, this could be an easy way for you to kind of solve for that. And the buyer would be happy to do that for you, probably, if there was a viable replacement option there. And the other thing is, you know, this life after sales stuff, what happens with my staff? That's going to vary slightly between each and every buyer. The answers I'm giving right now are very generic, right? They're very general and all these guys will operate a little bit differently, but in general, they're going to take care of the staff because the last thing they want to do is deal with a bunch of unhappy staff members and a bunch of unhappy doctors. And then they bought what they bought a, a well-oiled machine. So there's no reason to mess it up. Do I have to work more days? Can I still take vacation? All these different things. Again, schedule wise, in almost every case, you're not going to be asked to work more days than you had been working. Can you still take vacation days? If for the last 10 years, you've taken a two-month-long vacation to somewhere, and they've done that over the last 10 years, you're likely to be able to take that two-month vacation moving forward. At the end of the day, as long as the practice is producing, and as long as it's producing and it's profitable, and it's as profitable as it was when they bought it, and you didn't misrepresent a bunch of things that on the onset, you're going to be fine. They're not going to be bothering you about a whole lot of stuff. If you're down 30% two weeks after you sell you're probably going to have some people showing up at your office and asking some questions. Yep, absolutely. I mean, I think that's exactly what I would hope most people would want to hear. I mean, I think there's also, we get this question a lot. Sometimes I get this question in the private transition world as well, where you know a client wants to obligate the buyer, corporate or private, to what they will do with the staff, right? I want to make sure you keep the staff and offer them the same vacation and do all of those things. And I understand wanting to do that initially. And we just covered that they're not going to come in and change anything, right? But you are selling your business. You are selling control. And you are also, you're not selling the employees, but you're selling the right to, to make policies and procedures and do all of those things, right? You can control yourself and you can control what they maybe ask you to do, but you no longer are going to have control over what they do long-term for those staff members, right? Now, a good partner will come to you and ask you probably and consult with you and say, what do you think is going to work? And, and they're going to want your input, but it's really hard to contractually obligate a buyer of something, no matter what, to do something with their employees and their processes and their hours. So I think it's also just important to keep that in mind too. And that kind of goes back to that control piece of like making sure we're 
we understand we're giving up some level of control and a good partner will know that you want to work with those staff and that those staff are going to make you better and more efficient and they're not going to want to rock the boat there, but they are going to ultimately have the control to do that if they want. So Charles, anything to add kind of on that point before we move on? No, I mean, these, these doctors, they love their, as much as they complain about the people part of it and management, they do love their people and they want them to, like Brett said, have you know a place where they can continue to have their home and hopefully have even a better benefit package than they had before, just a succession plan for them. So it's cute and it's funny that sometimes they're like, I want this on the contract. I'm like, you're not ready. You're not going to get... X millions of dollars in, in cap control over Sally's continue to make $26,000 or $26 an hour and take off two months because of this. It's like, don't know that I can negotiate that for you. Now, I'll try, but there's no guarantee. She's going to be an employee of this firm and that firm will make that decision. If Sally does her good job and I'm sure they'll continue to keep her, but you've got to know that you're giving up a lot of control going to this deal. And to be clear, their goal is not to get involved into the weeds and all this stuff. The buyers don't have a whole lot of interest in going in and changing everything in the practice or hassling Susie if, if Susie doesn't need to be hassled. If everything is running well, they're not going to want to get involved and they're not going to want to change all these things. And so while they ultimately could kind of do whatever they want on the staff, they have no interest in doing that. That's not how they make more money. That's not how the value of the practice increases generally. And so they're going to stay out of that unless they have to get involved, just like you would as a buyer buying someone else's practice. Yep, absolutely. So let's talk about another thing that comes up often, which is let's talk about the real estate. So Charles, what are your thoughts on real estate? I mean, I think we kind of, do they buy the real estate? Are we entering into a lease? Kind of what does that look like? Yeah. So it's just some really short kind of examples here. So yes, I have yet to see one of these deals where they're purchasing real estate. So in general, they're not going to purchase the real estate. They definitely want to sign a lease. So this can actually be a really good financial situation for you. So if you've got this building and let's say it's worth uh, $800,000 and let's say that it's uh, 3,000 square feet and they're going to sign a 10-year lease at 25 bucks a foot and your financial advisor can look at this and say, hey, you know, you're going to receive $75,000 on this $800,000 building. It's a nice, consistent 9% whatever rate of return on that investment. This is going to be really good from an income standpoint that you're going to be receiving this money after you close you're giving up some cash as far as what you were making on a per month basis. But with the real estate transaction as well, this is going to help in your just lifestyle and the number you need. And so that's going to be a very important part of this transaction. But just big giant picture here, and we can kind of move on, is they don't want to purchase the real estate, but they're an excellent tenant to sign on you know, with you and to get fair and reasonable, maybe even call it top dollar. And that's certainly something, another negotiating piece that our team will help and work with you so that you're fairly compensated on. Awesome. Now, I want to kind of make sure we cover this process overview. Let's talk about the process and let's talk about what it looks like, right? If we're part one, we're this way through part two, and we feel like this is a good match, right? Brett, walk us through what happens from that first initial phone call where we decide and talk about the why and get the warm and fuzzies through we get the funds wired to our account. Yeah, there's, there's actually quite a few steps here. I'm going to skip some of the smaller ones, but it's a process for sure. And so we'll, like we said, we'll do that initial discovery call where we're going to talk about a lot of different things. Hopefully watch the podcasts. And so we can kind of get a little head start on that stuff. We'll do the discovery, discovery call, 
figure out what exactly your goals are. Why are you thinking about doing this? What are your interests and what are your goals and what are your expectations? And what does a good deal look like for you? So throughout that process, that'll be our discovery call. Quickly, we'll fall in love, commit to each other, and then we'll engage with NDP. So you'll engage with us to be our client. We will formally have a, an agreement that we're going to represent you and that we're going to market your practice and we're going to help you with every step of the way through this transaction. And we'll be with you on the good and the bad and the diligence and all the different things that happen there. So we take a deposit to get us started. You engage with us. We start the diligence process. So that means we're going to get into the nitty gritty of all the things that are happening inside your practice, all the things that are happening in your financials, what's happening at the banks, what's happening at the practice level, what's happening inside the operatories to some degree to give us a better idea of what exactly we're dealing with, what exactly we're selling. And we're answering the questions that all the buyers are going to have. That's the reason that we're putting this thing together. So this marketing packet that we create is the next step. We are answering all of the questions that the buyers will be asking. Once the marketing packet is created, we will shop the practice to the appropriate buyers that fit the needs that you have and that fit the market conditions that we're looking for, the deal terms, the work back, all the variety of different things that, that make sense for you and for your deal. And then we will do some introductory calls and we'll do some buyer diligence. They're doing a lot of diligence on us, so we're doing a lot of diligence on them to make sure that they are a capable partner of yours moving forward. This is more of a marriage than just a date with these guys. And so we're looking for someone who can be successful long-term with your practice, whether you're there long-term or not. And we'll negotiate those deal terms once we've identified the, the buyers that make sense. We'll negotiate the deal terms with each of them, find the most favorable deal terms with the most favorable partnership. And then we'll get to the letter of intent stage. The letter of intent, the letter of intent basically gives a general outline of the deal terms and what this whole deal looks like. After the letter of intent, there will be some initial diligence done by the buyer, really kind of looking in the nooks and crannies of the practice and seeing what exactly they are buying to make sure that they're buying what they think they're buying. And we'll go through some legal representation once we get the contracts from these guys. We'll have a team of lawyers review all these things. So, so the deal that we thought we had is what the contract says. And then once that, we will close. You'll cash your check. You'll drink a beer or water or whatever that your, your beverage of choice is. And uh, we'll go celebrate and you'll, you'll start down the partnership trail with your new partner. Yeah. So just one thing I wanted to add there too is, you know, I know that you're listening. Just want to be clear as like where we stand on this position of when we meet somebody and, and go down this road is we look at our NDP brand to help facilitate an opportunity and facilitate a problem, which is to buy or sell something, buy value or sell something. And our long-term goal is that during this interview, we may determine that before we even go down this road, that we may want to hit the brakes and go with Cane Waters. We may want to hit the brakes and, hey, let's get some really good, clean financial statements. Let's work with you. Let's get EDA involved to really lower your costs and to help with all these new vendors so that we can add value to the profitability, add value to our EBITDA, so that this makes sense for you financially. You know, the difference between, I think, our overall organization between Cane Waters and NDP and our Cane Waters Accounting and Tax and all these organizations combined is it does allow us to whatever part of this process that you're in is to serve you in that capacity first. Whatever we see is that first need is to guide you through that. You know, if you're a broker and that's all you sell is just broker and all you have as a broker is just connected to this two or three or five or six or seven, quote unquote, DSOs or private equity groups. I mean, that's great. It's just that that could be a route and they're maybe just going to push you this. We actually may take a step back and push this thing off for a couple of years. We may want to do the following things for the next six months or year. But the goal, these initial conversations, when you talk about just this entire process, Let's take a really broad picture first to see where you are 
and then to develop that plan so we can show you how you're going to get there. This is, again, this is a journey of how we're going to, to take you there. So a lot of steps I know that you're doing in this diligence process that we get all the way to close, Brett. And Christy, I know that there's a lot, you know, 20 steps. But remember, we're, we want to take a giant pause before we even go down this road. Absolutely. Yeah, no. And I think like Brett mentioned, he kind of went down the kind of high points. But clearly, there's a lot of pieces here, a lot of steps, some you're going to be in the forefront, right? If you're listening and you want to go down this road, some are you're going to, the ball's going to be in your court and you're going to have to do a lot of gathering financials and picking up those answers and working with me and our team to we're going to ask all the nitty gritty questions about your financials and what is this expense and kind of what happened in 18 and, and you know, what's going on. And then, you know, the ball will be in our court and, and you might not see what's going on, you know, behind the curtain as we kind of talk to these various buyers and we'll keep you updated and we communicate with you, right? But there will be times throughout the process Process where you will require more of you and sometimes less of you and initial diligence. And then once we find you the right partner and the right buyer, they're going to have another round of questions, right? And then you may become more involved. So it's definitely kind of a evolution. It takes time. You know, I think I would speak for all of us. I think six to 12 months is kind of what you should generally expect of how long this process probably takes. Can it happen faster? Sure. Can it also take longer? Sure. But, you know, in general, I would say, you know, about a year, half to a year is what's going to take to kind of get your practice sold. So, you know, I think like Charles said, wherever you are in kind of the time process, I think, you know, hopefully these last two parts of this four part series have kind of got your brain and got your wheels turning to figure out kind of where you are. And I would just encourage you to set up some time to chat with us. You know, that's free. It helps us, helps you pick our brain. We're here to be a resource for you. Lots of ground covered today, my friends, and lots of good information. I feel like this one's going to get a bunch of double listens. So remember, if you are listening, that this is number two of our four-part series. Number three and four will be released next week. So stay tuned for those. We'll be covering how to maximize your value and how to get the deal done. So listen in. Thank you, Mr. Pierce and Mr. Loretto for being my lovely co-host today. Awesome. Yeah, great job. Good job, Brett. Remember, follow Transition Talk wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you like us, leave us a review. Thanks for listening. Until next time, friends.